break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 14th of February, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, and we've got plenty for you here on the show as we always do, including... What you may have heard over the weekend from President Donald Trump that the smoking gun has been released in terms of the deep state plot against him. Is he right? Well, we'll walk you through it. We're also going to be talking about a just outrageous situation as it concerns the death penalty in Nevada. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the ongoing tensions between the U.S. and Russia. The United States government continues to insist an invasion of Ukraine by Russia is coming soon, although they don't exactly know when. And they say all this despite the fact their warnings to this effect so far seem to have been a bit overblown, something that's been underlined by Ukrainian officials. Nonetheless, on Sunday, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby stated, quote, things are sort of building now to some kind of crescendo opportunity for Mr. Putin, end quote. And after a call between President Biden and President Putin over the weekend, an American official told the press that, quote, the same dynamics, end quote, of the past few weeks were at play, meaning the dynamic the U.S. has been laying out of an imminent invasion. British Defense Minister Ben Wallace, who was recently in Moscow to meet with his Russian counterpart, poured gas all over the conflict Sunday, saying there was a, quote, whiff of Munich in the air, end quote. A reference to the 1938 Munich conference where the UK and France made a deal with Hitler that many at the time thought could prevent war, but which, of course, did not. On multiple levels, this has strong implications. Wallace is implying that anyone opposing the NATO saber rattling is some sort of appeasing traitor and that their actions will lead to catastrophic consequences and deaths on the order of World War II. And on the other, he is comparing Russia with Nazi Germany, which given the high veneration given to Soviet World War II veterans and the Soviet legacy in World War II in Russia is absolutely the most offensive comparison you could make. The Ukrainian government has continued to downplay the imminent invasion. As the New York Times described it this morning, the Ukrainians are seeking to reinforce a sense of calm. Sunday, Biden and Zelensky had a phone call where, at least according to the White House readout, very little was really discussed. But the very fact that the readout did not note any sort of Ukrainian endorsement of the U.S. invasion talk is a statement in and of itself. This comes after Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have questioned the quality of U.S. intelligence, protested the removal of U.S. diplomats from Kiev, and claimed U.S. claims of an imminent invasion are tanking the economy of Ukraine. Overall, then, there continues to be a high-stakes standoff between nuclear powers with no clear end in sight. What the conflict boils down to is whether Europe is going to be friendly or hostile to Russia or somewhere in between. The U.S. wants Europe to be a bulwark against Russian influence. As it states in the most recent national defense strategy, the U.S. wants to prevent Russia from having any real influence in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and Europe more broadly, stating specifically that any quote-unquote changing of the security and economic infrastructure, it's also a quote, in Europe is something that the U.S. wants to prevent. Russia, on the other hand, 
fairly consistently since the 1930s. The Soviet era has promoted a different vision of quote-unquote collective security that, over and above anything else, ensures that the countries on its border and into Central Europe are not militarized in a way that is clearly aimed at countering a quote-unquote Russian threat and which is based on mutual security guarantees to achieve a certain balance of power, so to speak. And the powerful countries in Europe are split. France and Germany favor a policy that is a bit more neutral and that, while containing its own fair amount of anti-Russian rhetoric, is essentially based on deepening economic cooperation, which is lucrative for all three countries involved. The United Kingdom has the same view as the U.S., perhaps even more bellicose, and collaborates closely with countries like Poland and in the Baltic states who agree with those aggressive style of policies. The issue, however, is complex. Russia is, of course, a part of Europe and a part of Asia, and there are centuries of cooperation, conflict, and commerce from west to east that bind them in a lot of mutual both ties, antagonisms, likes, and dislikes. Ukraine is, in many ways, becoming the tinderbox because the realities of Ukraine as a country speak directly to these broader issues that are roiling Europe, and that's most reflected in the inability of the Minsk II Accords that could potentially resolve the conflict in Ukraine to actually be implemented. While it's poorly understood in the West, Ukraine is divided on these issues. The clear trend in polling shows that support for both the EU-Ukraine agreement and the Euromaidan protest in 2014, the events that started this whole current saga, that in the West and Central regions, far more people want to be integrated into the EU and wariness towards Russia is higher. In the South and the Eastern regions, the situation is reversed. A significant number of people want to be closer with Russia and the former Soviet republics. This is why the Minsk Accords are so difficult to implement. The Minsk Accords are basically designed to lock Ukraine into a neutral position, so to speak. Basically, it would establish a fairly strong federalism in Donetsk and Lugansk, which, in addition to other parts of the East and the South, and their politics would mean that basically it would be hard for the Ukrainian parliament to agree to anything that wasn't basically splitting the baby, so to speak, between the West and Russia in terms of how to conduct relations with either side. That was also, more or less, the platform President Zelensky ran on, ending the conflict, healing the rifts, and focusing more on improving the economy. The problem is, in Ukraine's current parliament, partially because of the de facto secession of the two areas in the east, there's zero desire for that sort of arrangement. And many of those political parties, certainly a plurality of them, want to avoid a situation where forces deemed quote-unquote pro-Russia have much influence at all. So Minsk is a non-starter because the two sides can only agree to a framework, but the details quickly become unworkable. It's worth remembering the Russian military buildup started fairly early in 2021, after Zelensky switched gears, became more hawkish, started launching legal attacks against the leader of the second largest party in parliament for being a Russian agent, and shut down a number of opposition TV channels for the same reason. All this was done with the backing of the U.S., so in some ways, the current conflict is really a result of the fact that the issues in Ukraine remain not only unresolved, but difficult to resolve and reverberate out from Ukraine into the broader region based on the geopolitical issues we discussed earlier. All sides are stating that there is room for diplomacy, that they want to keep talking. But at the end of the day, both sides seem to be dancing around a resolution. The issues most discussed are a deal to limit offensive missiles and military exercises on both sides, but no real concrete proposals have been advanced on that front, although Russia says they have prepared a 10-page response to the U.S. response to their previous set of negotiating positions. But again, it seems a little bit more just like going around and around with responses. The longer the standoff continues the more a chance that a small incident in the conflict zone in Ukraine could snowball into a bigger, devastating conflict that would undoubtedly kill tens of thousands and perhaps lead to a nuclear confrontation. 
The easiest solution would be for the U.S. or some other country with influence in NATO to say what everyone knows to be true, that Ukraine will not join NATO. As recently as last summer, their attempts to join NATO were clearly rebuffed by President Biden. But that is seen as a weakness in the U.S. and the U.K. to admit that Ukraine will never join, where in it's a, considered a weakness because in the U.S. and the U.K., anything other than full-throated warmongering is portrayed as treason. So that's where we are, a standoff between nuclear powers, millions of lives hanging in the balance, all because the U.S. won't just clearly state what is obviously its existing policy towards Ukraine's membership in NATO, principally because it wants to maintain Ukraine's membership in NATO as a chip to pressure Russia with as part of a broader agenda to make Europe an anti-Russian bulwark. Nevada is trying to execute Zane Floyd in what would be the first execution in the state since 2006. The Nevada situation embraces all the various contradictions with the death penalty in the U.S. these days, namely that it's growing increasingly unpopular, but the places that are still seeking to use the death penalty are becoming more and more extreme in their attempts to keep the death house open. In this case, Floyd's execution has been held up by the fact that three medical personnel have backed out of participating after a judge asked for credentials from the state due to fears of their anonymity being compromised. And the issue is playing a major role here because Nevada is attempting to use an untried drug protocol to execute Floyd involving ketamine, so essentially death by OD. The judge felt there needed to be some level of medical personnel there to monitor the situation. Ultimately, medical professionals are wary about participating in executions, undoubtedly, particularly this one, because there are serious ethical issues that could imperil their licensing. First off, the maker of ketamine is threatening to sue the state and has issued a cease and desist order saying their drug is not meant for use in executions, which is the very reason Nevada is using an untried drug cocktail. Most pharmaceutical manufacturers outright refuse to have their drugs used in executions, which are not an approved use. So when you think about it from the point of view of the medical professionals, assisting in an execution could be construed as a violation of their oath. It could certainly also be construed as something that, you know, they're using drugs in a way that they're not supposed to be used, that they're experimenting on people because it's a never before used way of using these drugs without any sort of legal safeguard. So ultimately doing all of this and doing it in a way that they know could cause pain and distress that may violate the Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment for the person being executed gives you a sense of why you might want to back out if you felt that your name might somehow become public. That this is even happening is, in a way, even more amazing because just a year ago, it seemed likely Nevada was going to end the death penalty. There was a bill that was had a lot of support in the lower house, the Nevada state legislature, but it was killed in the higher house, the Senate of Nevada, because of the actions of two senators who were also Clark County DAs who prevented the bill from coming to a vote. And Clark County is, you might not be surprised to hear, where most of the death sentences come from in Nevada. So on both counts, Nevada represents the broader reality of the death penalty in the U.S. today. There are fewer and fewer death sentences. Support for the death penalty is the lowest it's been for 50 years. Most drug companies oppose lethal injection using their drugs. And evidence continues to mount that even formally thought to be painless lethal injections are, in fact, painful and distressing. However, for the handful of counties and states around the country that account for the majority of death sentences, they're willing to ignore all of that and resort to exotic drug cocktails procured on the black market, and if not that, the revival of the gas chamber using equally as untested methods, or in Arizona's case, using the same gas the Nazis used in their gas chamber. The state of affairs means that every death penalty case more than ever before has become a battleground of both morality and legality. 
but increasingly people are acting on their own and demanding their legislators in the practice, slowly but seemingly surely, which is certainly no comfort to those whose lives have become pawns in the larger debate. Well, if you pay any attention to President Donald Trump or his broader realm of support, you will know that they spent quite a bit of time over the past few days hyping the most recent filing from Justice Department Prosecutor John Durham, who was appointed to investigate the investigation into Donald Trump over the allegations, ultimately rejected by law enforcement, that Trump was involved in some illegal or nefarious way with Russia, the so-called Russian collusion. Trump and friends spent quite a bit of energy saying Durham's most recent filing that came out at the end of the week in relation to a criminal case against Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman was the smoking gun that proved it, that proved the deep state conspiracy against him. In a statement, Trump said, quote, the latest pleading from special counsel Durham proves indisputable evidence that my campaign and presidency were spied on by operatives paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign in an effort to develop a completely fabricated connection to Russia, end quote. Kash Patel, the former lead Republican investigator in the congressional version of the Trump-Russia probe, put it similarly to Fox News, saying, quote, Per Durham, this arrangement was put in motion in July of 2016, meaning the Hillary Clinton campaign and her lawyers masterminded the most intricate and coordinated conspiracy against Trump when he was both a candidate and later president of the United States while simultaneously perpetuating the bogus Steele dossier hoax, end quote. Strong charges, and not surprisingly, when the story didn't get a ton of play from the mainstream media, Trump and friends went on to state that it was just a further example of how the media is just an extension of the deep state and that they were all out together to frame Trump. So is Trump right, or is it all hot air? Well, ultimately, it has to be said that Durham's most recent filing isn't quite a smoking gun, but there is certainly some smoke in the vicinity. Sussman was an attorney for the Clinton campaign and also for a tech company that seems to have also had some other ties to the Clinton campaign. Sussman has been indicted, and he denies this, by the way, he's just been indicted, for lying to the FBI when he met with them to give them now debunked allegations that, again, allegedly connected Trump to a Russian bank. Sussman allegedly told the FBI he was bringing the allegations on behalf of the tech company when, in fact, he was bringing them on behalf of the Clinton campaign. And this is where the new revelations come in, and honestly, it gets a bit complicated. The factual element of it is around whether or not Sussman's current lawyers, who also represented Mark Elias, who was the general counsel for the Clinton campaign, who worked at the same firm as Sussman, and then also Sussman's current lawyers at the same time, or relatively close to the same time, also represented the former firm that both of them were a part of, Perkins Coey. So essentially, Sussman is represented by somebody who also represented two other entities that could be targets of this investigation. So Durham is saying that it could be a conflict of interest, even though Sussman says it's not and is expected to waive it, but he's saying it could be a conflict of interest because both Sussman and some of these other people, Elias and Perkins Coey, may all have different stories about the same thing, and that with all that wrapped up in there, the attorneys might not be able to act ethically in defense of both their current and former clients based on the rules of law. So what is the issue that's at stake here that they might have different stories on? Well, it's the heart of what Trump and friends are getting at. And that's what role did the Clinton campaign play in stoking the Trump-Russia accusations? And did they have help from the FBI and Justice Department officials that were acting outside of their mandate illegally, if you prefer? The Durham Allegations Center on this basic fact. Sussman billed the Clinton campaign for work on the bank story. Sussman and Elias and the CEO of the tech company did all meet at some point and that the information ultimately provided to the FBI by Sussman, which allegedly was misrepresented, 
came from information the tech company gathered through contracts to provide services to the White House and potentially other entities that allowed them to look at information coming out of Trump Tower and some other places, which is why many Republicans are saying that they hacked the White House, although it's not quite that, but we'll get there. Or we don't know if it's quite that. Let me put you like that. We'll get there. So all things considered, this is why Trump supporters are saying where there's smoke, there's fire. They're alleging that the Clinton campaign must have, through their general counsel, Mark Elias, ordered Sussman and the tech CEO to use a pretext to illegally surveil Trump, then use that information that they had obtained to manipulate federal law enforcement. Further, since there are 400 emails between Sussman and the FBI in 2016 and 2017, the implication is that the Clinton campaign not only gathered this information— and then used it to direct the government, but that they then had inside help in manipulating law enforcement agencies to manufacture a criminal circumstance around Trump. Clearly, that would be a much larger scandal. It would ultimately boil down to that the Clinton campaign illegally hacked Trump, including potentially White House communications, used false information to create a law enforcement action against Trump, and then used their connections in the government to manipulate that process. So wrapped up in that could be numerous federal crimes. But all that being said, we do not actually know if that is what took place. First of all, these are all allegations. Nothing has been proven in court. It's just what prosecutors are alleging. And ultimately, most of what we can surmise from this is speculation. But what is true, though, is that Durham's investigation and previous congressional investigations are pretty suggestive in terms of the Clinton campaign. It seems more than fair at this point to surmise that the Clinton campaign sought to compromise Trump as an election strategy and that a number of people they were paying seemed to be going to great lengths to spread information about Trump that they knew to be highly speculative, if not outright false, and that most of them misrepresented their ties to the Clinton camp as they did so. Where there is smoke, there isn't necessarily fire when it comes to legal cases, but it seems fair to not dismiss these accusations just because they come from Trump. If high-level officials in either party are able to use their establishment connections and money to falsely smear people as agents of a foreign power up to and including breaking the law in order to win an election, that's something that does deserve to be known and revealed. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.